0: This is Indian Art History by MASH Podcast. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Indian Art History by MASH Podcast, and I am your host, Ayushi. In 1757, the East India Company defeated the Mughal Viceroy in Bengal and changed the course of India's history. In fact, that of India's art, architecture, culture and policies as a whole. While the British Empire developed a strong hold on the subcontinent, several things happened at once. The English language entered the scene, the education system started demanding Western expectations of academia, and classical Western style of naturalistic painting sought a higher regard. The West spoke with power and money over the Indian subcontinent that was majorly poor. And if there is anything that our relatives of the post-colonial world at large have taught us, it is that the culture moves where the money moves. And so, of course, the wide company officers dictated a cultural superiority, boasting quite ferociously a legacy of European Enlightenment, European Industrial Revolution, their scientific inventions and discoveries, etc. etc. This was the time when realism was given a higher importance along with artistic individuality. By 19th century, the idea of court artists was of the past, and in came the New Age colonial artists who followed the Western canons of realistic art, who participated in elite exhibitions and were funded by art organizations and forums set up by the British. And this created a perfect setting for Raja Ravi Verma to rise from the golden walls of the royal palace in Travancore to an international artistic fame. He learned from the court artist who was English and soon became a distinguished portrait painter. He developed an individual style where he made his subjects appear real, romantic and rather sexy. He exhibited extensively, and his work was being bought by almost everyone. Ravi Verma started developing, prototyping, and portraituring Hindu gods and goddesses as these fair, desirable-bodied, beautifully ornamented and dressed creatures set in idyllic locations such as gardens, palaces, forests, etc., etc., making them appear like these mysterious, beautiful creatures from fantasy lands. Of course, the culturally parched elite Indian audiences with zero to no cultural securities, needed a new mascot of British beauty standards to fare well in their own eyes as a culture made of richness and beauty. Ravi Verma was a skilled businessman too, because he quickly responded to the demands of the people and set up extravagant printed presses, selling cheap poliographs to lower- and middle-income groups as well. He worked hard, exhibiting extravagantly all over the world. Ravi Verma died in 1906. Socio-politically, things were changing as a newfound nationalism came to the fore. As a direct result of the Swadeshi movement, this nationalism denounced every idea and commodity that even breathed the word European. The national identity was quickly changing and moulding the national politics and spirituality. And Ravi Verma's works were quickly discarded by the nationalist artists as a mere copy of European sentiment. The artists of Bengal, particularly the Tagores, spearheaded their nationalist bandwagon, which soon developed into a full-blown movement. They were set to find glory in their indigenous roots. They willed to find inspiration in quintessential Indian art, heritage and wisdom. This led to explorations, collaborations within the Indian tribal forms. The era was coined as the Bengal Renaissance and the movement was known as the Bengal School of Art. A Tagore particularly headed this movement. By 1902, he had already finished painting his famous painting, The Passing of Shah Jahan. Here he mixes his influences from Mughal miniature style along with Western academic naturalism and to a certain extent a Japanese sentimentality. The painting shows Shah Jahan overlooking Taj Mahal. Shah Jahan, the Mughal emperor, takes his last breath and lies on the bed while his daughter tends to him. The painting is unique because it offers a sense of depth at Places and while also rendered flat in some elements of the painting. In 1900, he met with the Japanese critic Kakuzo Okakuro Tenshin as a part of Kakuzo's um, Pan Asian Alliance, which Tagore headed. They bonded over the shared traumas of the westernization of their countries. They both felt the need to revive the local arts. Together, they skilled a pan Asian cultural resistance against the West. Abanindranath Tagore worked with two of Okakura's students in Calcutta which influenced Tagore to a larger extent. He let go of the bright colors and strong lines of miniature palette and used soft and delicate lines, brush strokes and colors of the Japanese formats. In 1905 Abanindranath Tagore painted Bharat Mata in a traditional saffron sari, with rosary beads, a book, a piece of cloth, and rice stock in each of her four hands, which symbolized faith, knowledge, clothing, and food, respectively. The four commodities held in each of her hands symbolized her concerns for her citizens as any other Indian mother's concern for the well-being and good health of her child. The crimson sindoor spread on her forehead tells that she is married. Bharat Mata becomes an important concept for she takes care after the flora, fauna and humans of India, but also wears clothes of a common woman. She is dressed as a sage, indicating her thoughtful poise and offering deep care to her children, that is the citizens of Bharat Varsh. The beaded Rudraksh jewellery is suggestive of simple aspirations of India of that time. There are lotuses blooming in full vigour where she stands, representative of Swadeshi sentiments of the activists at that time. The human figure is proportionate with the four commodities in her hands, her jewellery and lotuses. In a way, one can say that the human figure is imagined as an equal to nature, yet the halo around her head portrays her as larger than life, putting her in a spiritually and socially higher position. And this was also the time when Abdul Rahman Chuktai's paintings caught the attention of many. He worked closely with Abanindranath, and his style seemed to be an amalgamation of Indian and Japanese sentiments as well. There is a clear influence of miniature paintings as well as Japanese influence. His characters are slender and fluid, painted in muted and contrasting colours. Like any other century, things were changing and there was a felt need to reinvent. People, kings and artists have felt the need to reinvent their identity through the preserved history of the new land and people they conquered or safeguarded. Changes in art and iconography have been a part of every battle, era, and epoch. But something was different during the early 20th century in the Indian subcontinent. The artist was no longer answerable to the whims and fancies of the court. For the first time, people from various parts of the subcontinent felt united against the tyrannical and exhausting rule of the British. The British rule had created a sense of alienation and existentialism, marking a unique flavor to Indian modernism. This modern approach promoted new and inventive forms of religious and secular Indian art. The artists could work independently on their practice, developing a unique style. They also questioned the already existing notions of beauty and fervently experimented with Western and indigenous canons of art, as well in search of uh, their unique voice and reaction to the politics. However, modernism in Indian art will continue later on till the 70s and 80s. But in this episode, I would like to discuss a few early artists who found their unique ways of responding to alienation and existentialism. I also want to note that This was also the time when the Archaeological Survey was performing mighty excavations in different parts of the subcontinent, and ancient history of India was unearthed for the first time, reinstating a sense of lost glory of the past. India's renaissance man Rabindranath Tagore, at 67, started painting. His portraits of faces, birds, and imagined creatures had a sense of foreboding, melancholy, and darkness. He used dark palette and refused naturalism, questioning the notions of beauty. His nephew Gorgonendranath Tagore experimented with cubism while also made caricatures and cartoons that questioned the status quo, much like the Kalighat paintings. Amrita Shergill too questioned the status quo by painting some riveting paintings on the subject of women. She painted herself, she painted nudes while she also painted women from rural India. After she came back to India from Paris, she wanted to paint the soul of India. Her subjects are brown like the soil from which she takes a lot of motivation. Jamini Roy too searched for a style of expression that reflected the primitive. Through a series of experimentations, Jamini Roy stripped down the naturalistic elements from his paintings and made them more graphic and linear. His mature work takes heavily from Santhal and Kalighat styles, while he painted several themes and subject matters, while he extensively painted on motherhood and biblical episodes. Each artist from 1900 to 1947 reacted to the modernism in their own styles through their personal explorations and experiences that led them to choose the subjects, themes, and styles. Thank you so much for listening.